0: If you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, we are in verses 11 through 15, and I want to begin this morning by reading our passage aloud, Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 15. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay." And she prevailed upon us. When we think of the revivals of the 18th century when Just scores of people came to Saving Faith, uh, both in the American colonies and in England. Our minds rightly go to famous preachers like George Whitefield and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley, and again, rightly so. But in the same time period, God used a remarkable woman by the name of Selena, the Countess of Huntington. She didn't preach, but she was a ferocious evangelist. And she stands out because many of the converts in her day in England came from the working class. But here she was, a a noble woman, laboring hard to see the gospel transform England. Uh, Her peers made fun of her, they they mocked her, they sneered at her, because they saw evangelical faith as a a poor man's religion, but not Selina. She shared Christ with, with royalty and with farmers because she loved Jesus. And Selena stands in a long line of amazing women from Miriam's wisdom to Rahab's courage, from Hannah's prayer to Esther's love for her people. Throughout history, women have been on the front lines of. God's plan to redeem a people for his own glory. and The same is true in our passage where we find Lydia, both a hearer and a doer of the Word of God. Now, we're slowly working our way through Acts. We are witnessing the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church. The heartbeat of the entire book of Acts is found in the very beginning of Acts in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And now, in our passage, remarkably, news of Christ has reached Macedonia. For the first time in human history, the gospel has been preached in Europe. Sometimes at Mount Vernon we take a very long chunk of scripture, several chapters even, so we can more easily see the big picture. And sometimes we take just a few verses so that we can really soak it all in. And our passage is, I hope, a soak it all in passage, just a few verses for us to meditate on this remarkable ministry. And I hope that you marvel at how God is still powerfully at work in people like Lydia, even today. So there's a lot of things I want to say about this passage. I've boiled it down to seven things, which is basically twice as long as most outlines I preach, which inevitably means we'll be here for twice as long. Seven observations about Paul's ministry in Philippi. First, Paul began his ministry in a leading city, in a leading city. Last week, we left Paul in Troas, but in verse 11, he set sail for Macedonia, crossing the Aegean Sea, which is just north of the Mediterranean. And it was a quick trip, just a couple of days. He caught a good headwind. They take a short break on the island of Samothrace, and then they disembark in the port city of Neapolis. And it looks like Paul simply passed through these cities. We've got no indication that he stayed long enough to do any significant evangelistic ministry. Paul's destination was Philippi. Verse 12. In fact, Luke draws our attention to Philippi's importance. He calls it a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Now, some have taken this to mean maybe Luke was from Philippi, so he was sort of bragging on his hometown. I have no reason to think that's true, but he certainly points out that Philippi was uh, quite the large urban center and international hub of trade and commerce. That is Philippi. Now, Paul obviously prioritized ministry in major cities like this. Ever since he came to Antiochus, Syria, Paul focused his evangelistic efforts in cities. Just look at our New Testament. Paul wrote letters to Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Corinth, and Ephesus, and Rome. So Paul must have seen cities as unusually strategic places for gospel ministry. And it's easy to see why. Cities by definition, have lots of people there, which means a larger audience for the gospel, right? Cities have people coming in and out, in and out, which means when the gospel is preached in a city, it can more quickly go out into other regions of the area. We could probably observe this. Cities have an enlarged influence on our culture, It's in cities that laws are made. It's in cities that art is made. It's in cities that companies are built. So one of the the, the modern-day pastors who has talked most about the the urgency of ministry in cities is the former pastor and the church planter of Redeemer Church in New York City in Manhattan, Tim Keller. And he really devoted a lot of his life to really encouraging uh, congregations to focus their attention on cities. This is what he said. He said, the cities of the world will continue to grow in significance and power. Because of this, they remain just as strategic, if not more so, than they were in the days of Paul and the early church when Christian mission was predominantly urban. I would argue that there is nothing more critical for the evangelical church today than to emphasize and support urban ministry. Well, of course, none of this means that rural or suburban ministry is unimportant. It simply means that it is valuable to have thriving churches in densely populated urban centers. And this is one reason why Mount Vernon has supported urban church planting in Atlanta. Churches like Cornerstone Church in the West End or the Midtown Bridge Church in Midtown or Gospel Hope Church on the East End. And internationally, you know, it's no surprise that if we've sought to engage the unreached peoples of the world. We've often sought to do that in cities like Dubai and Ras Al Khaimah in the United Arab Emirates, or even more recently, Nairobi. And we can pray that God would use our own proximity not far from the urban center of Atlanta and our own commitment to city ministry both locally and globally to spread the gospel far and wide. And I will say this is true of probably any healthy church, but one of the remarkable things of being in one place for a long time is you see people come and you see people go. And one of the most encouraging things for me over the years is seeing people come and hear the gospel Sometimes they're coming and maybe for the first time being part of a congregation that really might take something as simple as church membership seriously and it excites them. And when they go to another church, they might talk to them about the value of being a body that's really knit together. Sometimes it's simply someone coming to saving faith and then going away to share the gospel with family and with friends. So in any healthy church, you're going to have people come and go and take the good with them to other regions of the world and other parts of their life. And being in a place like Atlanta, I would say, by and large, we get to do that more often, don't we? Pray God would use us to be a blessing to the city. All right. Second, Paul preached within the Roman Empire. Paul preached within the Roman Empire. Philippi was a Roman colony, Luke tells us. Philippi is named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Before the Roman Empire, Alexander controlled much of the world from Greece all the way to India. And though Alexander's empire came to an end, it had an enduring influence particularly when it came to language. Alexander made Greek the trade language of his kingdom. They called it Koine, or Common Greek. They used it in the day-to-day business. Even after the Roman Empire, when Latin so often became the official language, people throughout the world were still speaking Greek. When Paul came to Philippi, he spoke Greek. Our New Testament is written in Koine Greek. By the time Paul landed in Europe, Rome had been in charge for many decades. We know, of course, of the brutality of the Roman Empire. Look no further than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But this same empire used its might to bring order to the world. It's called the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. Rome's vast wealth and military might meant safety for travelers around the world. And so, for example, when Paul landed in Neapolis, he was able to take the Ignatian Way, a road, all the way from Neapolis to Philippi, and he was able to travel in relative safety. Why? Because of the Pax Romana. I'm not saying travel was easy. It wasn't like getting on Marta or hopping in your car. But Rome made it a lot easier and safer than it had ever been. The Pax Romana explains how Lydia could travel safely between Thyatira and Philippi. So, do you see how, maybe this doesn't sound very amazing. Maybe, like, what in the world did he just do? Going to, like, History gobbledygook land. Look, so much of the world speaking one language, so much of the world connected by the Roman Empire at the very time Christianity is making its way to the far ends of the earth. Do you see the hand of God in this? That is amazing. You might think, well, what a coincidence. No. Not a coincidence. The hand of God at work at just the right time. One Princeton professor, J. Gresham Machen, put it this way. It was not by chance that Jesus was born in the golden age of the Roman Empire, when the whole of the civilized world, the world which was to determine the whole subsequent course of history, was for the first time unified so that a movement started in an obscure corner like Nazareth, by the way, not a leading city, could spread like wildfire. Not by chance. Hand of God at work in the details of this world, paving the way for the spread of the gospel. And so I even marvel today when uh, some of us will go and travel and, and visit our friends in the United Arab Emirates. I just am struck that I don't remember exactly what year it was, but the UAE adopted English as the the trade language of the United Arab Emirates, and what do you know? Scores of English-speaking missionaries setting up residence in the UAE, planting churches, sharing the gospel. Chance? God's providence at work even today bringing the gospel to some of the least-reached and engaged peoples of the world. And I would add, in light of this providential God who works all things according to the counsel of His will, this God who raises up emperors that they might spread a language through which He will one day bring the gospel to the world, I would just add that therefore it's not a big stretch to say, you are not invisible to God. And I certainly do not know what God's specific plan is for your life, but I marvel that the same Lord who paved the way for Paul's mission is not merely aware of you. God does not merely know that you exist, but God is actually at work in the details of your life. If you are filled with His Spirit, God is at work, Paul says, to the praise of His glorious grace. And that should be a deep encouragement to you. Third, Paul looked for the interested. Paul looked for the interested. The apostle Paul worked hard to reach Gentiles. We know that. He had a unique commission, in fact, to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. But whenever Paul entered a new city, he went first to the synagogue. In other words, he he always went first to the Jews. He started with those waiting for the Messiah. Paul began with, if he could, he began with the most religious, the most interested in the God of, of the Old Testament. And when he came to Philippi, Paul had the same plan. So on Saturday, the text says, on the Sabbath, he looked for a synagogue. Paul had the same plan, but he couldn't find a synagogue. Philippi apparently didn't have a synagogue. So all he could do was the next best thing is find a a handful of Jewish converts. I think that's what verse 14 means when Lydia is called a worshiper of God. I take that to mean she was someone who converted to Judaism. He he finds a a handful of Jewish converts, and he finds them praying by the river, possibly praying through some set form of, of Jewish prayers. Now before we talk about those women, let's just notice again, Paul went first to the synagogues. He looked for those he thought would be most interested in the Messiah. Let's think about that for for our day, for a moment. Certainly, I think some things could be said about us reaching out to our Jewish neighbors. And uh, Jewish individuals in America today cover a vast spectrum of blatantly irreligious, with really no interest in the things of God, seeing Judaism merely as an ethnic marker on one hand, But but many of our Jewish neighbors, in fact, do take Torah seriously and are wonderful conversation partners when it comes to the things of God and will engage as we talk to them about their need for the gospel. So many of our Jewish neighbors, in that sense, are interested in the God of the Old Testament. But when we go all the way from the first century to the 21st century, one thing we we become wildly aware of, especially in a city like Atlanta, especially in a state like Georgia, with such a long history of revivalism and that really values church attendance in a way that many regions of the world and even many regions in our own country do not, something that happens is we see the rise in nominal Christianity. Right, the rise in the number of people who would declare with their lips that Jesus is Lord, but don't actually live lives that demonstrate that they've submitted themselves to him. Right? They profess faith in Christ. They remarkably affirm that Jesus is God, that He was crucified, that He rose from the dead, but that that gospel message which they appear to know intellectually doesn't seem to have transformed them. They are so you could call them a lot of things. You could call them religious, right? You could perhaps call them interested, at least verbally, at least intellectually, in the things of God. Matthew 15, 8 seems to fit here these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Interested in the things of God, but not actually knowing God Himself. If you, I say if you know someone who embraces Christianity intellectually, but shows no sign of heart change, I know you do. I mean, this is where just we are living in a a remarkable place, where we brush up against people every day. This is them. They embrace Christianity intellectually, but show no sign of heart change. Well, let me encourage you to be especially bold with them. Right? Tell them about your faith. Like, In one sense, I would say go in, not so much assuming the best, I would never encourage you to assume someone that you know to be a non-Christian to be a Christian. All right, I wouldn't encourage you to do that, but if you've got someone that you know would affirm that Jesus is God and that He rose from the dead for their salvation, you should be especially bold with them. Like, with a big smile on your face, say, how is your relationship with Christ today? What did you do at church last week? How are you growing in your faith? What does Christ mean to you? Now, some of your nominal Christian friends, will begin to dislike you very much, right? Those who may in fact simply be sidetracked or stumbling, if they have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will immediately convict them, and they may begin opening up and talking to you about the gospel. Some will in fact be cut to the heart, because you may be the first person who ever showed how to live out your faith by talking publicly about the Lord. So, do I want us as a congregation to be adept at reaching our atheistic, agnostic friends? Absolutely. And in fact, Paul's ministry is so remarkable that eventually we're going to get to the Arapagus and we're going to see how he dealt with those anti-Christians, but certainly open to spiritual things. But for now, just think about your nominal Christian friends and the opportunities, you may have to be bold with them. And if you can't be bold with someone who says Jesus is God, I don't know with whom you can be bold, all right? So, interesting that that Paul shows, focuses on the interested, all right? That was the third observation. Right, the fourth observation, Paul focused on the marginalized. He focused on the marginalized. So Paul went out one Sabbath day looking for a synagogue. He didn't find one. Looking into verse 13. And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So someone must have told Paul about a small group that. Gathered occasionally, maybe regularly, the informers might not have known exactly where this group was, but they supposed that they had gathered by the riverside. And sure enough, Paul and his team finds these women praying by the river. According to Jewish custom, it took 10 now, this is Jewish custom, not according to Torah, but according to sort of the. Um, the traditions of the Jews in Paul's day. It took 10 men to form a synagogue. Not a single Jewish man is mentioned by the river. Just a handful of women gathering and praying, women interested in God, but they don't have Jesus. Now, why are they outside the gate? And it, they're not merely outside the gate, but they are they are on the riverside. I mean, they, it appears that they cannot get any further away from the city center without getting wet, right? They are removed from society. Lydia is outside the gate geographically, right? They, they presumably felt the need to, to worship in secret. Lydia is outside the gate, in that sense, religiously, right? They comprise a very small Very small group of Jewish converts. They're outside the gate by virtue of their gender. Lydia may be a wealthy woman, but she's still a woman, and neither Lydia nor her friends counted toward the minimum number of men required to found a synagogue. So, sort of in every way, they were really outside the city. So, here's the irony. Paul came to a leading city, but his ministry there began with a handful of marginalized citizens outside the city. Well, if you know anything about the Bible, you are not surprised. God has a habit of using, to use biblical language, vessels of clay, jars of clay, to hold treasures of inestimable price. That's the way God works. Right? Jesse's youngest son, the gangly but handsome David, killed Goliath and became arguably Israel's greatest king. We read Ezekiel uh, this morning, and I was, I was personally so challenged by the life of Ezekiel, preaching through Ezekiel a number of of months ago. I don't know outside of Jesus that there was another prophet that suffered more for his calling than Ezekiel. I mean, he lost his wife. Certainly any shred of dignity from a human point of view went by the wayside in Ezekiel's life. But did anybody receive a vision as glorious as the one Ezekiel received? Maybe Daniel, but maybe not. We know that it was a female outcast walking by herself in the heat of the day to a Samaritan well who just happened to run into the king of the universe. Of all people, to have an evangelistic conversation with the Messiah, it's this sinful outcast from Samaria. Of course, it's, it's not Easter time yet, but a, a band of confused women with no legal standing in a Jewish court of law are the ones who discover the empty tomb. Peter, the one who denied Christ three times, is the one who eventually, though imperfectly, became a lion in the early church. Paul, a murderer of Christians, becoming the church's greatest missionary, and all because a no-name carpenter's son from the backwater village of Nazareth was none other than God the Son incarnate. There's a pattern here. I could spend all afternoon repeating the pattern. And all that to say, Lydia should not surprise us. It should not surprise us that Europe's first convert was a woman probably a widow huddled with a small group of women outside the city on Saturday morning. Yes, Paul came to leading cities like Philippi. But he came for the marginalized because Christian ministry has always happened outside the city, outside the gate. In places that no one much cares about. Let me give you some examples. Maybe some of these examples will hit home for you. Maybe not. I could give so many more. Christian ministry happens outside the gate, on living room floors, where young dads and young moms lead their family through the Bible. No one much, with all due respect, no one much cares what's happening on your living room floor. Satan does. Ministry happens outside the gate. In nursing homes, where seniors who can barely hear or remember what you said are nonetheless taught about a heavenly home available for all those who repent and believe the good news. In Sunday school classes, where five-year-olds are told Christ is better than all the toys in the world, again and again and again, in a kitchen where a middle-aged mom is willing to tell her son that he doesn't know the Lord. Ministry happens outside the gate. It is easy to get excited, and and there are reasons to get excited when uh, Adabo Swinney or Drew Brees or Kanye West or Justin Bieber say good things about the gospel, right? Just don't forget that the gospel power is most often unleashed outside the gate among people whose names you'll never know. Right? So my question for you is, what are you doing to minister outside the gate, like, proactively? What are you doing to minister outside the gate, recognizing that the, the, the power of your ministry is how closely it reflects the pattern that we see in scripture. What are you doing to minister outside the gate? Number five, Paul depended upon the spirit. Paul depended upon the spirit. Look at what happens when Paul shares the gospel with this small group of women. Verse 14, one who heard us, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful, to be full of faith to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She convinced them to go and and stay With her. Now, in many ways, Paul has been the focal point of Acts since his conversion in chapter 9, right? It's been, you know, all Paul, all the time. And you might be tempted to put Paul up on a pedestal and think, you know, he's the key to the spread. Of the gospel and the growth of the church. And you might be tempted to think, what the church needs today is another Paul. When is the church, you know, when is God gonna raise up another another Paul? But but Luke will not let us go there. He will not let us put Paul up on a pedestal. He will not let us draw the conclusion that Paul is the key ingredient to the promotion of the gospel. No, Luke is clear. It is the Spirit of God who brought Paul to Philippi. Right, not Paul's great planning. Right, that's sort of the message from last week. Honestly, Paul didn't know where he was going. And wherever he wanted to go, the Spirit redirected him. Now what's the point? Well, it doesn't look like Paul's in charge. Yes, Paul is making decisions, but God is overruling them right and left. So, it wasn't even Paul who brought them to Philippi. It was the Spirit of God And it's the Spirit of God, likewise, who saved Lydia, not Paul's great preaching. Verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That that Greek verb for to pay attention is the verb which is in Greek, so it's hard to pronounce. Prosecco, prosecco, it could be translated in a number of different ways, and some of your translations will have a different word. It can be translated to care, to care. It could be translated to devote oneself to, to be devoted to something. It can be translated to, to respond, to respond to something. Many of your translations will have to respond, And so it seems that what happened is not that the Lord opened her heart so she didn't fall asleep during Paul's sermon. Now, if the Lord opens your heart so you don't fall asleep during my sermon, like, praise God, you know, more of that. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And she's hearing what Paul is saying, right? There there, there are gospel words coming at her like daggers from the mouth of Paul, but it wasn't until the Lord opened her heart that she could truly understand in such a way that she responded or, or cared about or attended to this gospel message. Right? So, so first, the gospel comes to Lydia in Paul's preaching. Right? Then the Spirit comes to Lydia's heart opening wide that heart, cracking that heart open, softening that heart, and then now filled with the Holy Spirit, receiving a a new heart, Lydia now responds in profession of faith. That's what appears to happen here in Philippi. Right? Luke is showing us, the Spirit is showing us that Lydia needed the, the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in her so that she could respond in faith to gospel proclamation. Now we find the same idea all over the place. Uh, one place to see it is in First Thessalonians, chapter one, verse six where Paul is reflecting on the gospel coming to Thessalonica. I love it. I mentioned this earlier to to describe the um, the evangelistic impulse of the Thessalonians. They were a wonderfully evangelistic church. That was verse 8. But in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is just marveling on how the gospel came to them, really on what happened when the gospel came to them. Paul writes this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, now, you might stop there and say, well, well, how does Paul know the Thessalonians were chosen by God? How does Paul know the Thessalonians were loved by God? So clearly, Paul understands himself to be writing to Christians, but, but how, how can he be so, so sure of, of God's love for them? How can they be, he be so sure that they are, are chosen by God to be members of his family? And so Paul says, because, because our gospel came to you not only in word, not only in word. Okay? So, I'm speaking words. Those words, I hope, are intelligible to you, right, as I speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about His death on the cross for sinners, about your need to put your faith in Him. The gospel is, I mean, if you're hearing me, right, the gospel is most definitely coming to you in word, but that's not how Paul knows that they are loved and chosen by God. No, Paul says the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And I think that is to say that the Holy Spirit and the power of God are never separated. When the the Holy Spirit comes, the power of God comes. When the power of God comes, the Holy Spirit comes. And so the gospel came to these Thessalonian unbelievers in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit, their lives changed. They professed faith in Him. And Paul says, oh yeah, I know you are loved by God, because you look like people loved by God, filled with the Holy Spirit and power. It's God who saves. It's really what we've been singing about all morning. It is God who saves. To Him be the glory. We need His power. We need His power to be saved. We need His power to be sanctified. We need His power to grow. We need His Spirit. Yes, when when someone hears the gospel, they must act. It is their duty to repent and believe the good news. The gospel demands it. So even as I preach the gospel, I don't simply say, I really hope that you'll believe what I'm saying. I really hope that you'll pray that God would open your heart. I don't speak like that. I say, friend, turn to Christ now. Right? It's your duty to put your faith in Jesus. Do it. But recognize this, God is not a passive bystander to our salvation. Right, like, like, like someone driving by an accident, like you're, you see there's an accident on the side of the road, the, the car is in, is in is flames, you, you pass by the side of the road and you're just hoping that that, that, that driver, you know, crawls out of the, of, the, of the burning car. God is not a, a bystander, like unable to stop and help. No, that's not God, not God at all. God is a rescuer. God comes to us and He he rescues us from the dominion of darkness that John prayed about a few minutes ago. I love how, how one Christian put it, God is omnipotently active, omnipotently active, working with and through the Word to bring His people to faith in himself, right? And, and, when, and when we share the gospel, and I'm not merely talking about me preaching the gospel, right? but when we as Christians communicate in words the gospel of Jesus Christ, he said, the mighty Savior whom we proclaim is busy doing his work through our words, visiting sinners with salvation, awakening them to faith, drawing them in mercy to himself. And friends, it's happening on living room floors. It's happening in nursing homes. It's happening in kitchens. It's happening in Sunday school classrooms. God is omnipotently active as we speak his word, bringing people to saving faith. And therefore, for those of you discouraged because you've been sharing God's Word and you don't see God's omnipotent action, you need to take heart that no one is outside of God's reach. I am tempted at times to grow weary in doing good in evangelism, especially with my family. Like Lord, how many times do I need to share the gospel before you save them? I know that I don't need to spend every conversation sort of beating them over the head with my big black Bible. And that's probably not going to be helpful. But I must not lose heart because I recognize that God is the one who opens people's hearts. And he does it when he sees fit. And if he wants to do it with my father when my father is 85, I praise God for that. If he wants to do it tomorrow, I praise God for that. If he does it when your child is four, praise God for that. If he does it when she's 44, you praise God for that. Not your job, not your job to save. I I know we know this intellectually, but we are in desperate need of knowing it in the very core of our being. Because if we don't understand this theologically, I fear we will stop bringing the word. You share the gospel with your uncle, with your brother, with your dad, with your son, with your daughter, you share the gospel. God opens hearts. And what this means, and this is an implication that uh, is real. (laughs) This means that your knees, K-N-E-E-S, your knees are nearly as important as your words. Nearly. No one has come to saving faith without gospel words. Right? That's most important. But if it's God who opens hearts, then we ought to be praying, Lord, open her heart. Lord, open his heart. Uh, not growing weary in doing good is not gr- growing weary in praying that God who is omnipotently active, would be omnipotently active in the men and women and children we are seeking to see come to saving faith. I mean, don't go up to them and say, well, I'm, I'm praying that God changes your heart because I know you're not going to. I don't think that would be wise or helpful. But theologically, you know that unless the Lord opens their heart, they are not going to submit themselves to Christ. So you tell them, lovingly gently repent and believe and you pray quietly and persistently lord open their heart no one is out of god's no one is out of god's reach number 6 paul baptized believers look again at verse 15 And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She was was persistent. She was convincing. She prevailed upon them. Not long after Lydia responded to the gospel, she apparently shared the good news with her household. Lydia must have been wealthy to have a house, all right? She appears to be the head of her household. No husband is mentioned. Has a household, probably a widow. The household then would have consisted of family as well as servants. She was a a trader in purple cloth. The purple dye came from Thyatira. right? And so the purple goods were goods, cloths, dyed in this very expensive dye which was the thing that made things purple, really up until the 19th century when it was finally replaced with chemicals. So she was someone who, who traded in a very, very expensive merchandise. She was a, a woman of means. So to say that she was marginalized was not to say that she was sort of the refuse of Philippi, marginalized for her Judaism, marginalized for her gender, but in, in, in many ways a, a well-respected woman in the city. She shared with her household Paul's message of salvation in Christ, and it appears that they believed as well. Now, baptism was Lydia's response to God's work of salvation. We don't know how much time there was between Lydia uh, responding to the gospel and Lydia being baptized. Luke isn't keen to let us know exactly how much time there was, but clearly there was enough time for Paul to discern that she was faithful, that she was full of faith, that she was a genuine believer. And so he baptized her, and in Lydia's day to be baptized was to face the threat of punishment. You want to see just how much was at risk for Lydia? Just keep coming back to Mount Vernon as we walk through Acts, and you'll see the suffering thrust upon Christians in the Philippian culture. When Paul could be sure of her faith, he baptized her. And what became true for Lydia, by God's grace, was true for entire household, whose heart God opened to Paul's message. Baptism is our first public act of Christian obedience. The Bible doesn't talk about the right age for baptism, but it's good to be old enough to have your faith tested so that you can be proved faithful, full of faith, tested. Now, Matthew, this morning, you are going to be baptized, right? Matthew's affirming that. And you will do what Lydia did nearly 2,000 years ago, Lydia and her whole household. You will be baptized. And this act of baptism is your public statement that you belong to Jesus Christ and that he belongs to you, as amazing as that sounds, that he's your Lord, that he opened up your heart to the apostolic message, that you've got nothing to boast in but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You don't need to boast in your your school, your family, your friends, nothing to boast about, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, seriously, you're about to get swim trucks on and get wet in front of all these people. You got nothing to boast about except Jesus Christ and him crucified buried in baptism, risen from the dead. What an amazing thing. So, you're just doing, take heart, you're just doing what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years, and may you never leave the one who first opens your heart. Number seven, Paul enjoyed Christian hospitality. Paul enjoyed Christian hospitality. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. After baptism, Lydia's next act of Christian obedience was to open up her home to other believers. It's called hospitality. And it is a simple but profound act of generosity where we seek to be joyfully open-handed with something that is so precious to us, our homes. Right, Jim High School taught us about this just a few Sunday nights ago. Hospitality is a theme found woven throughout the pages of Scripture. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Peter knew that this kind of hospitality would be hard, right? Peter knew that we would not always want to do this. Peter knew that some of us would be gritting our teeth as we engaged in the biblical act of hospitality. First Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, right? So if any of you are thinking, I don't really want to do this, join the club. Right? There have been Christians like that for centuries. Peter wouldn't have said "Don't do it without grumbling" if he didn't know that there were some people grumbling. Now we often and wrongly associate hospitality with women. Now maybe one of the—I mean, I don't—I have no idea this is true—but maybe one of the reasons is because of Lydia. Like one of the first, you know, demonstrations of hospitality we see is from Lydia. But interestingly, Paul says that before a congregation can recognize a man to be an elder. He must show himself to be hospitable, 1 Timothy 3.2. Hospitality is a big, big deal in the Bible. So as a brand new believer, Lydia opened up her home. And so I would say to us at Mount Vernon, yes, we will continue to have children's ministry. I'm thankful for it. As a father of four, so grateful for children's ministry, for youth ministry, love it. We will continue to have special retreats for women and men as we can. Uh, we'll continue on Wednesday nights to come and grab dinner together and stay for Bible study during that midweek opportunity. All that is good. And, and, and we should take advantage of our central location. I mean, we are right by 285, that's cool. So, you know, not too hard for most of us to get here. Hop on the highway and boom, you're here. So we should take advantage of that by opening up our church building as much as we we possibly can. But remember, hospitality is one of the most obvious signs that the Spirit of God has changed you. When you let people into your home, you are letting them into your life. Give your time to them. Talk to them. Lead them in prayer. Share a devotional. It's not a program. It's Christian discipleship, sometimes evangelism. It's hospitality. I will never forget Helen and and Young, both now gone to be with the Lord. They opened up their home to me when I came to a small church in Washington, DC in 1994. I think I was about Matthew's age. And uh, since then, a lot of people have opened up their home to me. But I will always remember Helen and and Young inviting me, 22-year-old kid, I think I sat at a kids table actually the evening that they had a number of people over but I wasn't bitter I was just struck I had not I'd not grown up in a Christian environment and was really I hadn't actually seen it my first 4 years of being a Christian in college I'd never experienced that uh, a few weeks later Ethan and Wendy Reedy invited me to their tiny tiny basement apartment when I say tiny I mean like the mold had to move over so there's room for me to sit and I ate spaghetti with the Reedies, and just was overwhelmed. And, and, and the Youngs and, and the Reedies, in a sense, changed the way I viewed Christianity and certainly the way I thought about church. All of a sudden, I recognized that like one of the most practical things we do as Christians is just open up our homes to others. And now when I read through the Bible, I can't help but see the call to hospitality all over the place. I see it in John 13:35 when Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I know that one of the best ways for me to show my love is to open up my home and to do it without grumbling. I see it in John 14, just a few verses later, when Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And listen to this, in my father's house, Jesus says, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is preparing a place for me, Aaron. you got to be kidding. Don't you know me? He's preparing a place for me. Yes, his blood-bought brother. I'll have a room. I'll have a seat at his table the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. When you invite people into your home like Lydia did, when you give them a seat at your table, you are giving them a tiny, but not insignificant picture of what God is like. When you think about successful churches, we often measure how many people come through the front doors to sit under the preaching. But on the day of judgment, when everything is sorted out, I'm not sure those large churches will necessarily be the churches found most faithful, but those churches filled with Lydia's opening up their home to believers and unbelievers alike. Yes, I want Mount Vernon to be known for our commitment to sound teaching and sound doctrine. But may we always be known for warm, gospel-centered hospitality that reflects something of the kindness of God. I don't know what obstacles there are in your life to this kind of hospitality, whether they're financial, whether it's anxiety over having people in your home. I do know, having had conversations with many people, that there's a surprising number of Christians who think, no one would want to come over to my home. It's just not true. It's not true. You are loved and people want to spend time with you. Hospitality is a beautiful picture of the gospel that you get to show as someone filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The gospel spreads and and churches grow through the ministry of people. It's spread through great preachers like Paul and and Whitfield and Wesley and Edwards. It's spread through fiery evangelists like Lydia speaking the gospel to her old household, and Selina, the Countess of Huntington, preaching the gospel to queens and to farmers. But is the gospel spreading through you? Are your words and is your life filled with grace and truth? Have you opened wide your heart and opened wide your home to brothers and sisters in Christ, the beautiful and practical nature of Christian discipleship. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we're so grateful that in a moment we're about to see and witness and bear witness to a, a young man who's about to publicly profess his faith in you. We're thankful for that. But even now, we ask that you would work on our own hearts. And Fathers, we see uh, your, your love for cities, your, uh, your desire for your people to go and reach out to the religious and to the marginalized, the, the way we see your great providence in all of history, uh, your design in baptism, your call to hospitality, and, and more than anything, the reality that you are a God who changes lives. We pray that we would not leave this morning unaffected by the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.